You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I woke up on New Year's Day feeling like my leg was on fire. It was a lengthy trail of pain, beginning just below my right ass cheek, running along the tendons behind my knee, and wrapping around to the tibialis muscle in my shin. Just wiggling my toes made me see stars. This wasn't the first time that I'd awoken with minor injuries and had to reconstruct the previous evening's events from underneath my covers, but I was bathed in a sense of relief knowing that at least I'd spent the whole night in my own home. My husband Eli was beside me, stirring from sleep, and there was no sign of a headache, which, considering my bloodstream's cold, hard evidence, was itself a tiny miracle. I'm injured, I whispered. It was more of a stage whisper, a stage whimper. My legs! Outside was all gray, a low and fuzzy hovering of clouds, like the city was being smothered by a particularly fruitful lint trap. I reached for my bedside glass of water, the constant companion of any severely allergic mouth breather with a deviated septum, and let out a yelp. What did I do? Welcome to the new year, same as the old new year. Beth Lissick is the author of Monkey Girl, This Too Can Be Yours, and Everybody Into the Pool, selected by Entertainment Weekly as one of the 10 best nonfiction books of 2005. Her new book is Helping Me Help Myself, Thank you for joining me, Beth. Oh, thanks for having me here. Let's. I'd just like to start out talking a little bit about how you started out as a spoken word performance artist. Were, was that you as a child? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I was a, I was a pretty well-adjusted kid, a happy kid. Um, but never. We didn't know anybody, and you know, my family. We didn't know anybody who were writers or artists or anybody who really did anything very creative at all. My my best friend's dad was a scientist, and that was you know something that I recognized as being very creative and interesting. But the whole idea that you would want to grow up to be an artist, um, kind of the the way that I was raised, it seemed to me that that was a little self indulgent. Like who who would really care, you know? And and like what did what did I have to say as a white middle class kid that anybody would really care about? And um, I, it wasn't until after I graduated from school, I went to UCSC and met a lot of artists there. And actually, that was the first time that I, I started to think, well, I don't know. These people are just putting themselves out there, and it's cool. I'm enjoying what, you know, I'm enjoying hearing all these voices or seeing all these different ways of, of people expressing themselves. And and had been kind of a secret writer. You know, I would write down conversations that I would hear on the bus, or but I didn't have any idea what I would do with them. And then I, I was in San Francisco at an open mic night and was listening. I just happened to be there. You know, unreal, I wasn't going to, to hear these people read their poetry. But this event started, and people just got up on the stage and started reading their three- or four-minute stories or poems. And some people were awful, and some people were great. And I just... I kind of knew right then, like, this is such a cool thing that people can just get up there and what they say goes into the air and that's it. It's not committed to the page. There's, you know, 30 or 40 people in this bar. It's not a big deal. And so I just, I decided that I was going to come back the next week with a, a poem or, you know, a piece to, to read out loud. And I did and and kind of kept going back after that. And I, I realized that I wasn't afraid to speak in public, and I liked the people that I was meeting. There were a lot of really interesting people who were, who were writing on the open mic scene at that time. 
Now, once you started doing this and you started coming back, I, this doesn't exactly jive with the honor student track star and homecoming princess. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that's the funny part about it. It's like it's so easy to, you know, we always want to compartmentalize people and have this idea. And, and so I would, you know, say to people, oh, you know, my parents are still married. I had a really happy childhood. I was a... I was, you know, I was a jock. I was a homecoming princess. But at the same time, I was, you know, I was also a kind of a quirky kid and, you know, shaved my head when I was in high school and would, you know, wore weird clothes that I would scavenge from wherever. And and so I, I think that, you know, when you say things like that, there's a certain connotation. But at the same time, it's like I was, I feel like I'm the same person now that I always was. But what was interesting is when I started going to these open mics, a lot of the people were processing um, traumatic childhood things or, or um, working through issues, rebelling in certain ways. Um, they were part of more of a punk rock scene. Um, and, and I always felt like I wasn't going to be apologetic about the fact that I was, even though maybe it made me seem sound naive, I thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to write from, you know, from who I know that I am. And it ended up being entertaining for people to hear stories about the mall or, or people getting, going to the tanning salons or, or that, that kind of California culture that was part of where I was from. Uh, and I just, I just embraced it and, you know, my Midwestern parents and all that. And, and instead of, Instead of kind of trying to hide it, I just thought, well, this is what I know, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write from that perspective. One thing that, that I really like uh, about your writing is the way your language is, is so clear. You, ha you approach things in such a kind of a raw fashion, but they're kind of happy things, but because you approach them in a raw fashion, we get a kind of a little dissonant uh, feeling in there. That's interesting. I, you know, I definitely try to, the only thing I try to do with my writing that I'm conscious of doing is that I want to, I want to be very conversational and I want to write as if I were telling the story and, and, but, but a little bit better, you know, how I would tell it to my friends, but remembering, oh wait, I've got to put that detail in there about, you know, I've got to find the right way to describe that horrible smell or like what, you know, what, what that was. And, and so I think that I don't, that's the only thing that I consciously try to do when I'm writing it is to make it entertaining and um, and to not not gloss over the kind of gross things or human things and, and all that. I just kind of put it all out there because I feel like, well, we all know. We all know what those things are. And, and so it, it seems silly. It's kind of like when you go see movies and nobody's ever really naked, like totally naked. You know, and we spend so much of our lives naked getting in and out of clothes and out of, in and out of the shower having sex or whatever but in the movies it's never just somebody just being naked I mean it, it, there are a few cases that you can pull out but just in a totally real unattractive way and I, I like that you have a knack for embarrassing details <laughs> in uncomfortable situations you often inflict it on yourself yeah and you know I think that part of that I mean part of it is that I'm like with with this book the helping me help myself I mean the whole idea of self-help to me is a completely uncomfortable topic. People, people are a little reticent to share their stories about the self-help books or programs that they've done. I always, you know, ran the other way from anything even remotely related to this. And because it made me really uncomfortable, that idea that you would read a guidebook to tell you how to do something, yet 
I, I felt like I was being a little adolescent in, in, you know, dismissing the entire topic. So, yeah, like, I, I love to go into things that are uncomfortable. One of my jobs, I dress up in a gigantic banana suit for my friend's fruit fruit delivery uh, business. And, and, you know, and I, because people either feel, people feel great when they see the banana most of the time, but it also makes people feel kind of weird and kind of sorry for me and they don't understand why I would be doing it. And, and I'm having a great time and I, I love, I love that. And maybe it's because I come from such a place of feeling comfortable in my family life and, 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 you know, just that I feel all right about myself that I think, you know what, I got to go in there and just kind of delve into the stuff that does make me uncomfortable. And there are the moments before I put on that banana suit or before I write something kind of revealing, I think, oh God, this is weird. But just the mere fact that it exists, it's like a a temptation, you know, I, I want to write about it because I, I have I always have the distinct feeling that I'm not the only one thinking these things. And and so it makes sense to kind of put it out there and, and in a way that's hopefully just just funny. Well, there's a, a great line in your book, your most recent book, where you describe yourself in the banana suit at the conclusion of the San Francisco race, and somebody says you went to college. <laughs> yeah, this. oh, people will say the most amazing things to you when you're in the suit. People will say, oh, God, you should have listened to your mom and gone to college, or, yeah, you went to college for this, or, God, you couldn't pay me enough to do that job. And I thought, what else is there that you would, that somebody would actually say that to somebody else? Like, I, I actually one time said to a, to a woman who said to me, you couldn't pay me enough to do that job. And I followed her up the escalator in my banana suit, just really friendly. And my face shows through the big face hole so she could see me. And I, I just said, you know, that's a funny thing to say because you didn't say that to the person who made your coffee this morning at the cafe. Like, oh, you couldn't pay me enough to do that job. Or you wouldn't say that to the bus driver or the taxi driver. I think it's really interesting that you chose to say that to me because I can't think of, and you probably can't either, think of anybody else in the entire world that you would say that to about their job. You know, and, and so that was, that. yeah, it's a funny thing because I get to, I end up interacting with these people and, and talking to them and, and get a lot of stories from it too. Vengeful banana queen. Yeah, well, you know, that's the thing though. That's my angle is not to be vengeful, you know. I just try to, I try to approach the banana suit like I'm not even wearing the suit at sometimes. Just I'm just like a person who wants to talk to you. Well, I, I, the concept behind your newest book is really great. So maybe you could explain it to, to us and, and explain to when you came to it as well. Well, the selection that I just read was me waking up on, on New Year's Day 2006, and my husband and I have a talent show every year on New Year's Eve, and um, so I had woken up, and I was sore and bruised and was like, whoa, hungover, and was like, why am I so sore? And my husband pulls out the video camera and shows these, and it's like an old digital camera. It's got these little short clips, you know, to the movie clips it takes are like six seconds long, and there's a group crowded around me in our dining room and they're going splits, splits, splits. And I, I'm sliding down into the splits in the middle of our dining room floor, which is something I have not done in 20 years. And so that explained why my muscles were pulled and I had this huge bruise on top of my knee. And I thought, God, you know what I got to do next year is learn to do the splits with the other leg forward and, and actually stretch and practice because it'll be really funny to just pull out this, like have some 40 year old lady, like pulling out these dumb, you know, gymnastics moves. And then that was when I realized that that was the only goal I had set for myself the entire year was to just learn how to do the splits. <laughs> and it seemed really pathetic to me. And I thought, God, I've never made a New Year's resolution. I've never read a self-help book. 
why don't I just try to do this experiment where I take this year and see if I can improve my life by delving into this world that I previously have totally shunned. Um, and, and being from Northern California, I was, of course, familiar with all of the the new agey type things and the rebirthing and the breathing things and all the things that are a little more fringe. But to me, the really exotic thing was, was the mainstream culture. And so I knew that I wanted to pick, seek out these really, the big guys, you know, the, the multi-million dollar best-selling people who obviously have changed all these lives and, and millions and millions of people have bought their books. And I thought, am I so disconnected from mainstream culture that that I, I can't even benefit from something that regular people can? Like, this seems so dumb. Then that's why I decided to choose, you know, for my finance month, I chose Susie Orman. And for my um, spirituality month, I chose Deepak Chopra. And Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, John Gray for my relationship month. And, and really picked out these these people who are proven in the you know public eye as as experts well let's talk about some of these experts uh you first decided to seek out a life coach and, and you one thing you named that chapter cringe stifling yet <laughs> you are, are a cringe seeker <laughs> <laughs> well i yeah that was a lesson in, in cringe stifling was to just decide that I was mature enough as a person to approach this thing that uses all this language that feels very strange to me, all these things about your life purpose and, and your um, personal mission statement and, and doing visualization exercises and trying to put all that aside and just say, okay, what are the basic ideas here? And I do seek out the cringe, but at the same time, there, there had to be a part of me I knew that really wanted to try and do this stuff or else the book was just going to be shooting fish in a barrel and making fun of all these people who are, you know, essentially trying to help people. And so for me, the cringe stifling was that that part of me that just kind of rejects everything that's very slick and cheesy and facile and kind of cliched. And I just thought, all right, I'm going to put all that aside and just say, all right, fine. We've all agreed. That's that's kind of how what that culture is. Let's get past that and, and move, you know, move into something else. Well, your first life coach was Jack Canfield, chicken soup guy. <laughs> yeah, and he, he um, had just written a book called The Success Principles, How to Get from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. And he's, his nickname is America's Number One Success Coach. So he is also turns out to be a, I mean, I knew this at the time, but the father of one of my husband's best friends, though my my husband's friend did not grow up with him as a father. They, his parents split up early on. So he didn't grow up with Jack as his dad in the house. But I had met Jack once on a random occasion. And so when I saw his book in the self-help aisle, I thought, okay, here's a place, here's an inn for me. Because I didn't even know how to approach this whole world. And I thought, well, there's a face I recognize. He seemed like a nice guy. Um, and I know that, I, I mean, when I used to write a column for SF Gate, a nightlife column, I remember writing something about his um, latest, you know, chicken soup for the NASCAR soul and chicken soup for the, you know, the, just kind of the kind of making fun of that entire thing. And I thought, all right, I'm going to, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt and just kind of read his book. And 
And it was interesting because, I mean, there are a lot of golf metaphors to, to sit through and a lot of stories about people's 6,000 square foot mansions and, and how you visualize wanting that red convertible sports car when those are none of the things that I want and, and have always. And, and so the part of it that is sort of financial and money, money driven, is, it's always seemed to me a very unattractive quality to be somebody who seeks out material possessions and money and and so that was it was interesting for me to to sift around that too and but at the same time thinking I could yeah I could use some more dough like I'm not going to say that I'm totally happy with my you know tiny tiny checking account that barely ever you know has money in it and you know so part of me was well I don't know what'll happen if I do visualize these things. And, and, you know, it might not be the sports car, but it might be the dishwasher (laughs) or something like that. So, yeah, so I started with Jack to kind of dip my toe in it and just see what this whole idea of a life coach is because I always found it interesting that when I meet more and more people now who who will admit to me that they have life coaches, and I find it fascinating. Um, Kind of like when people say they're in therapy, I think, well, that's so good that you're working through an issue or something that this person's helping you. And yet when somebody tells me they have a life coach, my immediate reaction is like, oh, God seems so self-absorbed. And, and at, but these people are just trying to, you know, get it to have a, have a buddy help them figure out, paying this person a lot of money, you know, to help them figure out sort of what their path is. And, and so I find, that, I find that an interesting concept. One thing you, you fairly meticulously document is how much each of these people want to change your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's that's where we get into real trouble because um, about partway through the book, I get um, the first installment, a, 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 a small amount of money to write this book. And so I end up, instead of, you know, trying to get a press pass and be, you know, pass myself off as a journalist, which I never claim to be at all, um, I, I, I thought, you know what, I just, I want to pay the money. Like, I want to know what it feels like to hand over $700 to go to a two-day Franklin Covey Seven Habits of Highly Effective People seminar. Like I part, you know, for me, I know there are other people out there who take the other approach and will will sit down with Stephen Covey and have their interview with him and try to see where he's coming from. But for me, the really the natural approach for who I am is to go talk to the person next to me and the, you know, the people who I'm meeting around me, um, as opposed to kind of getting the exclusive with the guru themselves. It's like, I want to, I want to, you know, I feel like I am just one of those, you know, one of the people who are just experiencing it. And, 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 and I don't know, I'm, I'm interested in that perspective as, as opposed to like the kind of insiders look. Well, one thing about these books, and this kind of comes through your book, is that they tend to be about some two, three hundred pages of verbiage, and you can boil it down. You can give away the whole game in about, you know, as you do in a couple of cases, in about ten rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it's fascinating. That I mean, the whole thing, like when the, the book The Secret came out, and, and thank goodness that that came out toward the end of my year, and so I didn't have to kind of document the whole mania about The Secret. But, yeah, everything that came out, The Secret's the Law of Attraction. You know, think about what you want and it's going to come back to you. And th- that was like the secret basically boiled down. But I find the, the, these ideas are things that if you look back on success writing or personal success writing are things that Benjamin Franklin wrote about and, and Emerson's idea of self-reliance and, and with a twist on it and a marketing and a new, you know, hairdo and a new way to, and, and, and so that these, these gurus kind of come out with these ideas and I mean, they take these ideas and put their spin on them and people 
gravitate toward the people that resonate with them. And so this is huge, huge industry now based on a very, very, you know, very few ideas, really. <laughs> and that, that, is, that is fascinating. Well, one of the things that I found really interesting with that you say, and you just were referring to this, is that the self-help industry, which we tend to think of as starting, I think, of Dale Carnegie, is right. Kind uh-huh. of the, the, yeah, the I had a win inception. Friends people. Yeah, boy, I remember seeing that book when I was a kid. It was, mm-hmm. um, it is really pretty old. Yeah, it's very old. And you know, my the first one that I remember was "I'm okay, you're okay," and I just thought, well, if that's the goal, being okay, what is everybody's problem? Like, aren't you? You know, like it's become so much more than that now that it's not okay to just be okay. You know, everybody wants to kind of form themselves into these perfect, amazing superhero uber creatures who can do everything. And and that, I, I, I think that that's a concept that is, is new, is taking these ideas of how to win friends and influence people. A lot of the stuff that's in uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, too, that Covey, you know, took from, from that is the idea of having a strong character, um, being proactive, kind of going through your life with this general sense of purpose and trying to be the same person in every situation, no matter where you are, like these great, great basic ideas. And then they get spun out into these bigger, well, you can, it's not okay to just have your house in your car. And I think it ties into the American dream too, is that the pursuit of happiness, which is a huge topic now in the culture, there's a lot of books out now about being happy and, and what that means and how to be happier and the science of happiness and and also that, that pursuit of, of something more, you know, and, and that's really where it gets blown out in the culture too, is just like people just want more and more and more and it's not, I think the celebrity obsession works into that too, that you, you know, we see all these people who look better than we do and, and seem to have better lives than we do and, and so that's, yeah, that's part of it as well. It's Dale Carnegie via Friedrich Nietzsche. Yeah. <laughs> so existential. The Superman. Superman. Now, even though you had an in with uh, with the Canfield and, and you were emailing him, did you ever really get to talk to the guy? I finally, um, in so this was in January that I started, and it was funny because I was following his advice from his book, trying to get him to give me free e-coaching lessons. So I was reading his book saying, you know, ask, ask, ask. Know the power of asking. Visualize what you want. So I would just visualize Jack saying that he would give me free coaching and and that he would agree to be my coach. And, and then I would email him and I wouldn't get a response. Then I'd email again and I'd get a rejection. And, you know, and it would just say, if you get a rejection, you know, bounce back and, and ask again. And I just thought, wow, I'm using his own advice and it's not working. <laughs> and that's pretty funny. Um, but then at one point there is a part where it says, you know, how do you know when your idea maybe just isn't good and you should just give up? And, um, and, and move on to some other tactics. So luckily, because I had this whole month-by-month strategy, by the end of the month, when I've been rejected by Jack, I, um, I start on my, my Stephen Covey chapter. But later in the year, I go and I actually go to Jack Canfield's house. And he's one of the few people that knew. He didn't know I was writing a book when I went to his house because we were there visiting, visiting his son. But I did um, clear the, the, the parts about being in his house. I cleared it with him before I published it because... He didn't invite me into his house knowing that I was writing a book. But I end up talking about the book with Jack, and he's really interested in it, you know, because he's kind of a guy who sees himself as 
somebody who takes ideas from other people. And, you know, he said, I've never had an original idea in my life. I take these ideas from other people and I try to put it out there so that it's accessible and people understand it and put it in a way that, you know, is appealing to people. And so, um, and then he gave me a copy of The Secret finally. And I'd been hearing about it all year and, and kind of toward the end of the year, it's huge. Oprah was just about to pick it up, I think. And he, you know, gives me a copy of this this film that he'd been, unbeknownst to him probably, but on his email list had been emailing me about all year. This is the most incredible event in worldwide film history, you know, and, and finally he gives me a copy of it. He's a very nice man, though. Now, Stephen Covey um, wants to, gives you the seven habits, uh, and you summarize them, giving away in essentially his entire book. Yeah. Was he very happy about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, it's a funny thing is that he, wrote, he recently wrote a book called The Eighth Habit that is even longer than The Seven Habits for just one habit. Um, but there was, a, there was a, a company at the Franklin Covey Symposium. They're called Executive Business Summaries. And they take these big, fat business books and they boil down the contents into two paragraphs. And then you can, uh, you can um, subscribe to their newsletter and they just, why waste your time reading these business books when we can sum it up for you in two paragraphs? And the funny thing at that seminar is that they had a big stack of his books, but next to that, there was a, a stack of his books summarized into two little tidy paragraphs. So, um, you know, he, I haven't heard from him, but I've been recommending his book to people. I mean, that is the one book that, that I will probably keep and, and, and look back on, because I did find that book uh, interesting. Next, you went to Mars and Venus. Yeah, that was John a wash. <laughs> I really, I did ever. I made my best effort to give that guy the benefit of the doubt, John Gray, and just he was the one person, you know, the whole year where I just, I, I didn't get it. I have never gotten those ideas that that men are like this and women are like this. I, I've always felt like there was a broad spectrum of how you know people are gendered and 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 though I didn't have the language to say that as a kid I always felt like you know I was kind of a tomboy and I was reading this book and I felt more you know uh, in a lot of places more like I was a big old man while I was reading it and I was like god this doesn't resonate with me at all um and it seemed like you know kind of sexist and actually very sexist and misogynistic and sort of these shortcut methods to um to, you know, keeping your wife happy by, you know, look like you're listening and, you know, just stuff like that. And it just, I, so I, when, when I, then when I went to go see him live, it was like a two hour long infomercial for some mineral supplements that he was selling. I mean, it was really, it was really disconcerting. And so that was, um, that, yeah, that month didn't work out so well. Um, and, and I'm kind of detailing as with my husband, you know, we have very opposite schedules, so we're hardly ever hanging out, and I'm trying to use some of these tactics on him from John Gray's book to see if they work, but, it, you know, they didn't really work, and, and um, I don't, he, I picked him because that, that is supposedly the best-selling book of the 80s, and he is known as, like, the expert on male-female relations, um, and, and yet, wow, I don't know who would be good. I don't know, maybe somebody has some idea, but that he didn't do it for me. Well, leave, leave the seat down. Right. Well, that's the thing with me is I'm just like, really? Like, even that? I'm just like, you know what? No, don't leave the seat. The seat, whoever's using the seat puts it in whatever position they want it. I said it's like a light switch. 
you go in if you want the light on you turn it up you know if you want it off you turn it down whoever is using the thing just touch it what why do men only have to touch the toilet seat i so even that i'm just like oh god i don't get it <laughs> and i i totally admit that's probably just you know me being weird but well, he's actually coming to Capitola Book Cafe I bet he is. Month. You know, it's funny because he is, we are on a similar tour path, as are a couple of these people, because they're so prolific. You know, they, I put out a book every few years, but it seems like every year these people have a new thing they're doing. And, and uh, you know, this he, he's, he is, yeah, on the circuit. A lot of people that I'm talking to across the country at radio stations and TV stations are like, oh, looks like John Gray is going to be here next week. I'll ask him about that. <laughs> Now he wanted a thousand bucks, or that that cost you a thousand bucks. That cost me thousand bucks, but that seminar was actually relatively cheap because the way it fit into my schedule, it was like a big um, conference for marriage and family counselors that he was mm-hmm. speaking to. But it, yeah, with the plane fare and the hotel, it was a thousand dollars, and 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 the seminar, yeah. So and and you know, and I'm pretty cheap person, so I ended up really picking the things that worked for me financially that I could manage. I mean, this book could have been a different book if I'd had, you know, some gigantic budget to go to the spas and to really get in there, you know, and it would have been interesting too, but I felt like, well, I am one woman and this is what I can do. So that's all I can, you know, that's all I can really do with it is, is do the stuff that I can afford. Next up, Richard Simmons, yeah. a guy who always frightened me. I, I think there are little children. Y- you say that you lived a life without childhood trauma. <laughs> I think there are many children out there who are probably traumatized by Richard by Simmons. By Richard. I ended up loving Richard, and I, I chose him because I, I really saw him. I wanted to do a health and fitness month, and I really saw him as the longest-running, best-known health and fitness guru in the United States. And whether, you know, I mean, it's all open to opinion, but to me, he's the guy that's been in my psyche since I was a kid. He had a week-long fitness cruise that I could go on, and so I... That's a rockin' deal. Oh my God! I ended up having an amazing time because I got to see the other sides of Richard. You know, with with a, with a whole week, it was I was around him a lot, and so I saw the crazy like, okay, everybody, you know, that, like that Richard. But then I also saw the Richard who gets so much energy and love from the people who follow him and whose lives he has actually changed. And I see how much there's a give and take with some of these gurus. I mean, especially with him, and um, and I saw him be totally real, like strip away all of the histrionics and, and all of that stuff and just actually be a normal person having a conversation. I, and and it was it was mind-blowing. I saw him in pants. I saw him wearing pants. You know, that was a big deal. So um, I, I enjoyed that. And I really had, that was the most, you know, for me, that was the most fun chapter to do because it was, I had never been on a cruise before, which is itself an entirely bizarre experience of being trapped on the ship with all these people who only... 225 of the people were Richard's group, but the the other, it was a regular carnival cruise ship, so there were people who were wasted, and people who were who were, you know, at the buffets going crazy, and all around this is Richard's group trying to eat off the spa menu and do the aerobics twice a day and and not give in, not have any cocktails and all oh, that. And God, so, I can't imagine I could, <laughs> trying to be on a on a on a fitness thing on a cruise ship with yeah, those buffets. That's insane. terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that was that was a fun one. One of the things that that uh, you, happened to you is you met some interesting people there. Tim. Oh yeah, I. This was so, I mean, I really, now this is me just copping out, but really, I was on this cruise ship, 
and surrounded by people who really, I mean, as I said, a lot of people, they were partying, they were wasted. I felt really out of place. Like I didn't quite fit in with Richard's group. And I just, you know, I, and I end up meeting this guy who was totally depressive, was a pot dealer and a musician from uh, Denver, Colorado, incredibly handsome. And, um, and but but really like addicted to pot and I don't smoke pot and um, I you know I've known for a long time it's just not my thing and I, it makes me really hyper if you can imagine um, so I, so I know I, I don't even comment I mean so you know it's just there's certain things that don't work with people's body chemistry that that for me does not work so anyway I end up just kind of out of boredom and this random wild feeling end up smoking pot and basically totally made out with this guy and who I, and I, if I'm what am I blaming the pot my you know shady morals like my my you know and and then felt so awkward and so weird and then have to go and explain it to my husband which was a um a part of the book that I tried to write a couple times and it didn't make it into the book because I couldn't we ended up having an actually very real good conversation about we've been together for 10 years and sometimes you know you're attracted to other people and how to deal with that and and I was trying to write this conversation and I really couldn't I couldn't do it and and um I just felt like I I can't put this in the book in in the ways that it's coming out it doesn't feel right and so in the book I leave the storyline with the time before I've told him about it because because whether it wasn't that kind of book or I'm just not a good enough writer to express that or what it was. But um, anyway, so yeah, I end up making out with this guy on the, on the cruise ship. Embarrassing. And yet, I'm talking to friends of mine. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, I did that one. And that kind of stuff happens, and you know. And, and I, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that it happens to everyone, but it did make, make me feel a little less lame, even though it was embarrassing. <laughs> As I was reading this book, uh, that was somewhat lampooning, or not really lampooning the self-help industry, but holding it up to a light that was fairly clear and not necessarily flattering, I'm thinking, you know, this book I'm reading is a self-help book. <laughs> this lady called on a, on a radio show that I was on. She called in and was like, you know, I quoted to my son something that you wrote. And I was like, oh, my God, maybe I can be a self-help guru and command $30,000 an hour for a talk. But, um, it, you know, in a way, the people that like it, the people that like this book, I think, feel this sort of kindred spirit idea that it's sort of a big, weird topic. And yes, there's thing, there are things in there that are valuable, but God, it's so absurd. And there's so much about it that... And so for that, I think that people... You know, there are certain people that it's going to appeal to in that way. Um, and I am breaking down some of these things where people don't read the books. They can kind of get the gist of what some of these programs are. But the people who don't like my book are really just like, don't feel like I tried hard enough to actually do the programs. And and I just thought, you know, that's another book. You write that book. But this is, you know, this is me trying to do it. Yet because of my skepticism and because of who I am, I go in and out of it all year. You know, I try really hard and then I'm like, oh, I'm so mad at how much money I'm spending. And I'll go back in and try something else and think, all right, I hope this works. But, oh, am I really, you know, am I really following this person's advice who has kind of a, you know, a shady personal care? I don't know. And so I think that um, it's funny that you say that because... I think for some people, it's probably the closest they'll get to ever reading a self-help book. <laughs> uh, that's probably true for me. <laughs> I, I have to say, 
the one trait you lack as a self-help writer is I think you're far too entertaining in your writing <laughs> because one of the things that, that it kind of comes out as you talk about these books and these seminars is they might have some good ideas, but boy, these people, don't lock them in a paper bag with a, with a pen because they'll never get out. <laughs> I, you know, there are a lot of... Uh, a lot of ways to say the same thing. And that's what that's what I found on some of these. I was like, didn't I just read that? But I think that people in some of these gurus in trying to get their their you know, make their product and, and make themselves a a commodity, they have to pretend like they're reinventing the wheel so that people think, Wow, this person really has it together and and so they end up, yeah, repeating a lot of these these same ideas over and over again or using the one thing that they do have, I think, in common is that almost all of them have this defining story that is the thing right. they pull you in with, you know. And John Gray has this horrible, I mean, horrible story, terrifying, about his father being found dead in the trunk of a car, you know. And I'm sure that he tells that story everywhere he goes, and it's a, it's a fascinating and horrific story. But by kind of taking you there... He, he, I could see, you know, it's like, I mean, he got me and I didn't even like his book or his, got a, I got a horrible vibe off him. Yet when he told this story, I was like, oh my God. Um, and, but he, that, he uses that story to express how he decided to help people was that he felt like, like he wanted to, it was, you know, somehow using that as a metaphor of being trapped inside somewhere and, and trying to find the way out. And, and, um, Susie Orman has a story about, she's got two stories, one about her father rescuing this cash register out of a fire, um, you know, and burning all the skin off of his chest, you know, I mean, it's just these horrible, and you just hear these people telling these stories, and you're like, oh my God, and then you realize they wrote this story in their book that came out 10 years ago, they do how many number of speaking events a year, and so like when I saw Susie, I was I was a little disappointed that I felt like I was being performed at and performed to in instead of sort of her making a real connection. I felt like, all right, Susie, you're telling this 10-year-old story that you've told so many times now that it's losing its impact because you're not really feeling it anymore. You know, to you, it's it's part of your your shtick as, you know, as horrible a story as it is. And so there's a lot in the the books that feels repetitive and sort of lackluster, but they they do all have these these kind of defining stories that are very dramatic. One thing that I thought was really interesting was, well, for me, you know, you talk about Susa Orman, mm -hmm. and um, when I see her, she's on our local PBS station. Yeah. And it just makes me lose faith in PBS. <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, I was so out of the loop that I didn't even know who she was before I started this year, except that she was that lady who was on PBS who I would quickly change the channel whenever I saw she was on. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know what her name was. I mean, and and now, of course, I see her everywhere. And, and now that she's in my consciousness, I can't get her out of there. But but um, but I did find some helpful things in her book. Um, and that that was true, but but her performance that I saw in New York was really off-putting in that it was just choreographed moves and her way of talking, you know, just was like oh, it was such a turnoff to me. But it, you know, apparently inspiring a lot of people around me. Now, one person you talked to, and I thought got some benefit from, and unexpected was Chuck Palahniuk. 
<laughs> yeah, Chuck Palahniuk is the author of The Fight Club, amongst many, many other books, but best known for that. Um, I've never read any of Chuck's work. I've seen, I've seen the movie The Fight Club, but um, or Fight Club. Um, but anyway, he, I happened to be at a literary festival in Las Vegas where he was the keynote speaker, and me and some people I know were like the lower, you know, echelons of authors who were there. And then we went, all went to the big night to see Chuck. And some insider source had told us that he was getting paid ten thousand dollars for this speech. We had all gotten a plane ticket and a hotel in Las Vegas, and we're like, cool, this is great. You know, we weren't being paid, and we were like, this is fun. And then going and seeing this best-selling mega author who has this huge cult following, and knowing that he's getting paid almost, you know, the, the same kind of money that some of these gurus get paid. And he put on a three, I mean, I left when it was beginning hour three. I mean, he put on this show in which he was tossing liquor bottles out into the audience. You know, when people just loved him immediately, there's a lot of college kids and like, woo, like little airplane sized bottles of alcohol, just tons of them, chucking them at people. And then um, he told a story that he, he, he started throwing out all these these severed, you know, rubber severed limbs with bloody stumps. And, and um, I mean, he was like, he was like an evangelist preacher, you know, and these kids who, I mean, he really has a cult following and these, these kids were going nuts for him. And, and I really did, as I saw that, I was like, wow, this is the kind of charisma, this certain kind of charisma in this certain way of speaking. I mean, that's a whole other book is that kind of motivational, you know, speaking thing that, that just had people eating out of his palm and going crazy. And finally, at some point, I was like, I have to get out of here. I mean, I, I've been here for three hours and he had no sign. There were no signs he was, he was letting up. And, um, but I found it, yeah, very interesting that as an, you know, as a, author of fiction that he was kind of on the same level as some of these some of these self-help gurus and finally sylvia brown life after death <laughs> i um sylvia brown is from my same hometown san jose california uh and she i had had an, a, a story about her from when i was a kid um she was a psychic back then too and she um it was really you know she was on like a local morning show and she just, you know, always kind of cracked me up because she's such a, uh, you know, her whole world-weary approach that she's sort of, I say she's sort of like Courtney Love, age 70, you know, where she's just like, oh, God, I hope there's heroin on the other side, you know. And she'll just say this on the stage of the Masonic Auditorium in front of, like, thousands of people. And um, ends, so I go to this thing, and I'm, it basically detest my cynicism that, that I've done these very, pra some very practical things like the home organizing or the parenting thing. And and things that have really helped. And then I just think, well, I'm, God, I'm giving everybody the benefit of the doubt. I'm really extending myself a lot here to sort of go with the flow. But like, if I go see a psychic, am I then just going to be like, Sylvia Brown really has a lot to say. And I go to, I go to hear her. And it was disturbing the, because her thing is talking to people who have passed on her and going to this, you know, all these, you know, having people stand up and say, why, you know, she'll say, why, I see your, I see your father, why is he clutching his heart? And this person who does not seem like a plant, they just seem a person who's weeping and said, because my uncle stabbed him in the heart. And I'm like, how did, how did she know that? Like, what, what is going on here? And it happened time and time again, where she was revealing these things about people and, 
but the mood was so heavy in that room. And, and her whole philosophy is that we are living in hell right now. This is hell. And if we can get through this, then it's all the promised land after that. You know, everything is, is great after, after this life, which I think is a comforting thought for a lot of people to hear who are, who are going through a hard time <laughs> is that, you know what, this is the worst you're ever going to have it. And so for me, that was like a way of, and I end up walking out in the middle of it because I can't take it anymore. And it's just so heavy and, and so depressing. And, and I, but it was, it's an interesting, I think, glimpse into this world of these gurus really having a message a lot of times that people want to hear, you know, that, that one, oh, that you can be better than you are and that, that I will help you do that. And also in Sylvia's case is like, this is the hardest you're ever going to have it. And I think that people who are in a really dark place are like, thank God, this is the worst I'm ever going to have it. And I will listen to whatever you say and I will buy your latte mug for $10 and I will buy all, you know, 72 of your visualization CDs because you're telling me something that I desperately need to hear right now. And so, um, so that's why I wrapped it up with Sylvia as just kind of a touchstone of like how, you know, am I really that deep into it? And and then you kind of come to the conclusion that I've got a healthy dose of, of cynicism still in me, but, um, but found it, found it found it very interesting. It's like the inverse <clears throat> of a famous Harlan Ellison story in which a man seeks to find, he wants to know when the prime moment of his life is going to be, and he goes through all this trouble and raises up this demon <clears throat> at great fear for his life, and the demon tells him, when you were 12, your birthday, that was it. <laughs> God, kills me. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of it, too, is this seeking out of, of happiness or being the perfect person is sort of like, you know, we all have these moments where we feel really great in our lives. And I think it's just human nature to try to do things to get yourself back to that time where you felt really great. And how can I get that feeling again? And I think that people spend a lot of time missing out on what's actually great by, by kind of chasing after this stuff. And I think that there are, there are useful books out there and there are useful people who can, who can help you through times. But I also think that, that as a generalization, people spend way too much time not actually enjoying what's, what's happening to them right now, but thinking that there's somehow something better that they're missing out on. Obviously, one of the best parts of this book, frankly, is your prose. Oh, it's it, so nice it, it, to say. Well, no, it's what makes it all worthwhile to suffer through you while you're suffering, <laughs> suffering with you while you're suffering through these people because they're all maybe fairly detestable. Um, so <clears throat> I'd like to you to tell me, uh, when you write this stuff, uh, does it just come out like that? Do you, uh, you're a spoken word person. Do you record yourself? Um, I don't, though I do, I will read things out loud. And I used to do a lot more editing by doing readings. Uh, when I was doing a lot more spoken word stuff, I would, I would do, uh, my editing process would be reading stuff in front of a live audience and then figuring it out. But this book, uh, it was, I wrote it very quickly. I wrote it as it was, you know, I wrote the book in about, in, in a year, as the year was happening. I spent about six months editing, but as of what I found out, what I was doing when I was editing was I was sort of not being true to the spirit of what I was feeling at the time, the times where I was kind of sucked into something or the times where I felt kind of vulnerable and weird. I, I you know, a huge part of my ego wanted to ax those things out and make them funnier and kind of gloss over this stuff. And so when I found that that, that was what I was doing, I thought I got to stop editing this thing and just put it out. So it was written in a year with some editing afterwards. But um, this one was definitely more quick and dirty than 
than my last book where I felt like I was more trying to really construct these standalone stories that were sort of, um, you know, get the, 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 the perfect amount of, of uh, elements that would define a time in my life. And this one, I just felt like I've just got to kind of go with it. And, you know, I, I look at it, of course, now and think, oh, I could have written that better and that could have been funnier and, oh, what, it would have been a better thing to write here, this or that. And I can't remember who it was that I read it, a writer that said, you know, it's kind of like getting... Do, having a book is like you get dealt a hand in cards and you just kind of play it as best you can at the time. And and that, for me, that's what this book is, is I just, I immersed myself in this culture and, and you know, kind of sinking and trying to swim the whole time. And, um, and, you know, I did sit there and read things out loud to myself and think, oh, is this flow good? Does this sound like an actual, is this a good representation of our conversation? And I had a lot of notes too from going to these things or tape recordings. And so I was also transcribing like Richard Simmons. I mean, most of the humor in that chapter comes from just actually what Richard was really saying, you know, and there's just direct quotes from Richard and that's the humor in it. Um, so yeah, not as much anymore do I, do I, you know, go through that editing process where I'm in front of an audience and doing it, though I do really hold on to to trying to sound conversational. So what's next? Oh man, well I'm uh, I'm working on a stage show with my friend Tara. We do comedy together and um, we have a lot of fun with that. So we're gonna do, uh, we're writing a show right now that hopefully will be up in San Francisco in the early summer. And um, I have a couple projects, friends books that I'm helping them edit, work on. I don't know what my next book is gonna be. I, you know, I hope somebody asked me today, you know, do you ever feel like it's just going to go away and you're, you know, you're not going to have a next book? And, and I think, uh, you know, I think that if you're, if you're curious and interested, then inspiration will. So I'm just trusting in that, you know, that there's going to be something that's going to pop up and I'm going to know when it's the right thing. So just, you know, doing some, some other projects right now. We've been speaking with Beth Flissick. Her new book is Helping Me Help Myself. Thank you for joining me, Beth. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.